Hey folks, welcome back to part two. You know, I just finished watching The Spirit of St. Louis after we recorded this episode and disregard everything we're about to say. It's bad. At the end of this podcast, you can hear our spoiler discussion for Witness for the Prosecution and The Apartment. We'll be discussing without spoilers for the majority of the podcast, so you can just tune out at the end if you haven't seen them yet. The next film we're talking about is from 57, The Spirit of St. Louis. It is starring another actor we have never spoken about, Jimmy Stewart, the great. Why is it ever starring Jimmy Stewart? Oh, he's so He's in every sequence in this film. There's more claustrophobic than any of Stewart's or Wilder's films. It is about the flight of Charles Lindbergh on the Spirit of St. Louis across the Atlantic, the historic flight. Sorry for minor spoilers there. And... Spoil, it's it's uh, spoiled in the opening by the tech on-screen text, so I wouldn't say it's a spoiler. That's that's fair. It's a, it's a great movie. It covers his flight from the beginning and the experience he has to go through, what this means from a psychological perspective, what it means from a physical perspective, being cooped up in the space. Moreover, interestingly, at the time, planes, you could not, properly see out the front so it was that experience of not exactly knowing where you were but it's also move it's because of um so look uh i said earlier in the show i haven't seen this film i've now seen half the film i used the break time in addition to have dinner the break time between us recording the radio segment and this extended segment of the show uh to try and watch it so that i could contribute more to the coming conversation and i got halfway halfway through um yeah it's partly what's interesting about this film is the background to the engineering challenges, right? Glenn was talking about not being able to see Ford. The reason is actually because of the design that the, his engineer and Lindbergh agreed upon. So for practical reasons, they decided that they'd make a plane where you can't see in front of you and you need to rely on this periscope contraption. And I, I found that aspect showing problems and solutions to be interesting. Yeah. And we see that play out because he obviously has to be an expert in not just navigation, but the mechanics of the aircraft and also have incredible metal and nerve in order to navigate this flight. It all takes place in most of the one location, but it still draws out a great deal of tension, uh, mostly due to Stuart's charm. He's not coasting here, even though he's just, well, even though he very well could, but he's, great in everything he does going all the way back to not just Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, but the very early, again, message films he made, which he specialized in prior to his big breakout hit. I think, I don't think this film would be very boring if it wasn't for him. It's a straightforward narrative, which is elevated to a great extent by a, one of the most charismatic performances in the history of Hollywood. And I liked it for that. Um, the one criticism I will make is that it didn't go into any detail. Obviously, the film didn't have the scope of this because of what the focus was on, but Lindbergh's obviously a very contentious figure in history, and the film doesn't address this or acknowledge it or go into any detail, which is disappointing. Funny you say that. Okay, so I've gotten... Uh, there's obviously many dimensions to this film that I am not qualified to comment on from um, the part I've seen of this film because... He's, uh, I'm more than halfway through and he's only just now gotten into the air where I'm watching. A lot, the first half of this film is just about um, coming up with the idea, uh, entering this competition to cross the Atlantic, um, getting the funds, building the plane, mentally preparing himself for the flight. 
um, so far, I found it to be really, really Hollywood uh, in positive and negative ways. It's very entertaining. Um, he's charming, Jimmy Stewart, as he always is. Um, and the forward momentum of it and the, the general warm spirit it radiates is pretty winning, but it feels very formula. Um, the, 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 at a certain point, you can just predict right on cue and it's going to give you a flashback into some moment in Lindbergh's life, which never really deepens his character. They all just serve to make him more charming or charismatic or likable. And this feeds into the issue you raised about the depiction of Lindbergh. I don't know much about him at all, but just from watching the film, I was thinking there's no way that he was this nice. It's a very simple picture. He, he was not. People who chase big dreams and make them happen against the odds usually have at least some tough aspect of their personality. They're fighters. They have to learn how to be dicks to people and bend people to their will. And just watching it, I was thinking, with the stuff he's accomplishing, there's no way that Lindbergh's was this or shucks kind of character. And that's what I meant when I said, boy, does it ever, when you said it stars Jimmy Stewart. It's such a archetypical Jimmy Stewart character where he's just, you know, the, the good neighborhood boy. Um, he drinks warm milk at night. Like He never drinks alcohol. Like, look, these aren't actual uh, characteristics of Lindbergh in the film, by the way. I'm just saying that I would not be surprised <laughs> if I found out they were. I just found him too simple. Like there's, he, he sort of innocently talks to a fly in his cockpit when he starts the, the journey. And it's just like, it's so awe shucks innocent. It felt wrong in the context of what I know about people like this who achieve these kinds of things. But it also felt wrong within the narrative just because his character was too simplistic to be holding my attention beyond Stuart's immeasurable charm. A lot of it feels like the moment in... Mississippi goes to Washington where the reporters ask him to do the sounds of the native birds from his area or when he's just on the floor of the Congress just being earnest and, oh, we're going to get through this and we're going we're gonna to make our way, we're going to find our way. It's like that. I don't buy it. Yeah. Um, it's, I would say that it's, it's well-made and entertaining but just kind of too simple. That, that's how I found it so far. But I'm interested to watch the rest and uh, see him complete this journey. So that is the spirit of St. Louis. That was the spirit of St. Louis. And next up, we are talking arguably his most prolific and well-known film. I don't think it's up there, up, up there with Sunset Boulevard, probably. Yeah. Some like it hot number 14 on the AFI's hundred greatest films of all time. Wow. Really? The film Marilyn Monroe is most known and associated for, I'd say the same for Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis. Mm. It is about, Daphne and Josephine, before they were Daphne and Josephine. It is about two people who witness, played by Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon, who witness the St. Valentine's Day Massacre and go on the run and dress in drag and pretend to be women. And somehow in their terrible get-up for a lot of people, the film asks to spend disbelief for this. It's fine. We're, we're all right with it. And they meet real-life woman, Sugar Kane, great name, played by Marilyn Monroe as part of entertainment troupe and go to some resort where they are pursued by gangsters this is one of the all-time quintessential comedies it is 
a classic. It is great. I've watched it many times over the years. I revisited it every few years. And I, I, I know I've said it about multiple Billy Wilder films, but I genuinely adore it. It has perf- as close to perfect as ending as you can get in terms of a final line and button. Yeah, um, it, there's, a, there's a great reference to it on Billy Wilder's tombstone. Um, see also Jack Lemmon's nearby tombstone just for Googling for those playing at home. Um, okay. It's, it's really dumb. As you say, you, you do have to suspend your disbelief for a lot of things. Um, and I, I'm pretty willing to go along with silliness, but there, there was just a point in this where it's like, we've established how Monroe's character is, um, you know, amazingly hot. I really had to suspend my disbelief to believe that one. Oh boy. Um, but anyway, it how Curtis and, and Lemon can't resist her and they're fighting over her attentions with each other. So then when they get to the, the land of millionaires, Florida, at this seaside resort, um, the millionaires all get, and the bellboy in the elevator, et cetera, they all come on to the terribly disguised Curtis and Lemon and no one out, no legitimate millionaires go for Monroe. <laughs> that was the moment where I was like, I'm not on board with this story anymore. Okay. okay. I, I, I love Did, the, it's, it's funny, but yeah. As a side Could, note, I, I love the depiction of the one millionaire. It feels like an older version of all the uh, senior businessmen we meet in the apartment. Obviously played for, <laughs> played for laughs. He was pretty funny. To be fair, I mean, Jack Lemmon does look great in drag. And it's better than Tony Curtis. Yeah, I mean, Tony Curtis was like Tony Curtis. Like, I could say, like, oh, it looks like a man. But Jack Lemmon, amazing disguise. Like, some of this eyelash in the makeup work was I agree. on point. You could basically say, oh, yeah, okay, that's a woman. I could buy that, you know, some of the millionaires going with Jack Lemmon. I was but, I was totally okay with um for the record the, the stupid disguises fooling people. Like that level of silliness I'm with. Yeah. Um a few of my favorite, very favorite moments in this film, the bit where Tony Curtis's character in disguise as the millionaire meets Shook Kane and pretends that he's from Shell Oil, the bit where he rises out of the bathtub, the absolutely hilarious sequence where Marilyn Monroe is trying to seduce him and he has to pretend he's not at all aroused by her and he's just like nope this is not doing anything for me I'm out it's no it's it's absolute comedy gold um any sequence with the, the beautiful dancing sequence including the cut to it with the rose and the millionaire and the Jack Lemmon character in drag um amazing stuff but it, it, it's so funny that Marilyn Monroe in this movie has to even pretend to do some actual work to seduce anyone because she doesn't have to. <laughs> she doesn't need to. It's clearly that like she's definitely the most attractive person in the entire set. In the entire universe. Whatever, at least from this. <laughs> and the camera loves her. The camera adores her. The, the way she's presented on camera is fantastic. So it is just... What you're saying crash. is that she's introduced with a butt shot. <laughs> this movie does a lot for women's rights, <laughs> but uh, I, I mean, in but... defense, it uh, it's not as crude as I watched the beginning of Transformers three recently. God, no, yeah, us. yeah. Thank, thank to, to God. Be, to, to be honest, uh, Shirley the... MacLaine does win one back for the women in the apartment when 
she has that line out of the elevator where she's like, keep your hands to yourself. And we'll get, yeah, we'll get that. We'll get to that. Anyway. But, um, no, I, I actually really liked Monroe's character in this and her performance. And I like that compared to some of the other Monroe films we've discussed here in the recent weeks, Seven Year Itch and, how, and no, sorry, not How to Marry a Millionaire. Um, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which is about How to Marry a Millionaire. Um, aren't they all? Yeah. She's just perennially the, the gold if digger. If you're film. an attractive woman, clearly you don't have any resources to know how of your own. So you're looking for an older to-do millionaire. Yep. Um, following the Jane Austen dictum, which is, you know, it's a truth universally acknowledged that a, a, a man... Man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Want of a wife, essentially. So it's true. What's good about her character here, though, is that she says, oh, I'm, I'm pretty stupid. But I'm not very bright. I'm not very bright, yeah. But <laughs> she actually comes across, in comparison to these other characters, like she does have some intelligence. Yeah. I think like she, there are clearly things going on. She has plans and schemes and things. And, and she comes across as, as a, maybe, maybe a little bit of an airhead, but it's not this explosively stupid caricature like what we see in The Seven Year Itch. She had, there's enough dimension to her personality that though this is mostly carried by Curtis and Lemon, you can go along with her character for the runtime and she's endearing. And yeah, the character loves her, not just in the crude ways we've spoken about, I just referenced. It's it also, it is really adoring in the way it presents her face and the way she sings. Um, yeah. This is. I, this I want to be loved by you is a genuinely great song. Yeah, it is. The songs in this yeah. are great. Um, it's but such also, a, yeah, I, I do feel that uh, Marlon Monroe's character is smarter than Curtis and Jack Lemmon's character. In this yeah, she is. Because I mean, firstly, the choices they make aren't the smartest or the brightest ones, and the fact it only works because they're so committed to it. I mean, the fact that they decide to go in drag is firstly not a smart choice. So it's it's clearly a television. All the everyone, to run away from the mob. Everyone that stresses women. No one will no one will discern it. Nobody. It's just such a light effervescent film. Like the the plot is loose way of connecting these silly kind of incidents. Um, yeah. and the other thing is like Tony Curtis just doesn't change his voice and Jack Lemmon has this high pitch. Yeah. Tony Curtis, in drag. Tony Curtis is infamous for this and the worst example took place the following year in Spartacus where he does not sound like a Roman senator at all. It just sounds like really Tony Curtis. Um, on, on a matter of this movie, however, there is a, there's a problem that it's hard to believe that Sugar Cane would still be won over despite being knowingly deceived or that she would be okay with aspects of how she is treated. I appreciate I that in this film, it's an absurd comedy and in the heightened unrealistic universe, you, you go along with it for the, for the laughs that, inher that inherently recognize the absurdity of the premise. Um, it's actually a similar, there is a similar attraction in the, in the apartment, which is much more pronounced given that it's more dramatically focused, but in some like it hot, I think Wilder was operating a better temper for this sort of character and what he was willing to let the narrative and believability get away with, especially as the whole thing asks you to accept that Jack Lemon, Tony Curtis, uh, play two people called Daphne and Josephine. We're going to uh, have some fights about the apartment, I can tell. 
We've, it's been cooking for weeks. Oh my God. The, the, uh, I, but anyway, we'll, we'll get to that next. Yeah. Um, Stay tuned. It's probably what, like, like 3 a.m. or something, where if you're listening to our midnight well, session. It's almost close to 1 a.m. while we're recording right now. So it's, yeah. Uh, um, but I promise, I promise, guys, the payoff is worth it. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, sorry, the 1 a.m. is definitely getting to us. Um, the. <laughs> <laughs> you anything more to say on this film? I I, I like it. I Look, it's I I don't love it. Yeah. I I um it's entertaining throughout. I don't think it's often hilarious. I would actually say that the seven year itch is funnier. Yeah. Would you disagree the, with that? The I have a similar problem that I have with Sabrina is the fact that you know we don't get to see enough of sugar canes, <laughs> sugar canes <laughs> agency. <laughs> agency in this film yes we do get more of a character and we get to understand what she wants and what she desires what her plans are about life but still we don't get to understand why she would choose one person over another and the reasons why she would forgive them in these circumstances even in this heightened universe there's not enough of the agency from her perspective that i was looking for but yeah this isn't isn't operating the level of the apartment this is operating (laughs) the level of True believability. The final, no, but it's, even if it's, it's operating at the level of Sabrina, which was also, I think, quite heightened absurdity to, to some extent. But not like this. Like the final line of this film and the final gag is just pushing it into the level of, if it wasn't already, of just so ridiculous. Yeah. And it was um, perfect. I really like the way that he stages the comedy here. Some of the scenes at the end um, in the resort in Florida, the people running this way, running that by way. A very um, Buster Keaton style comedy. Yeah, but it also recalls the screwball style a little bit. You know, that really like madcap, then this happened, then and the, the mixing the physical um, with dumb wordplay and the relentless pacing of it. But I, I do have to disagree that I do think this is a better film than, and a fun, a better comedy. Oh, it's a better film, better film than the seven year age for sure. I'm just saying in terms of pure, like, is this funny? Seven year age probably has funnier bits for me. There are individual funny bits for the reasons discussed earlier. Seven year age became tired much sooner here. All the main characters are put in constantly distinct situations, whether it be the bit on the boat, the bit on the beach, um, the running to unmask Daphne. I agree. um, The eluding the gangsters. Yeah. uh, It keeps moving. It changes. Yeah, and it keeps moving through these silly scenarios, and the act is really the act is really carry it. How funny is Tony Curtis's weird Cary Grant impression? Oh, (laughs) that's right. Yeah, it's pretty spot on. It's Cary Grant a la to catch a thief, and he's more stilted performances that he's taking (laughs) out of. It's pretty well done. I I think what works to the benefit of this film is that Wilder's uh, plot-driven and action-driven screenplays, which are often so smooth, actually become heightened in this scenario, where everything is propulsed pretty much by the madcap energy. And it's like, let's literally, there are ten things, and let's throw each of them, and everything is happening. And the pace of the movie is pretty much directed by uh, everything unfolding on screen at once. And it, it's got its energy of its own, which is kind of after a while, the film is working on its own. Yeah, I agree. The momentum pace. is what's making Moment, it work. Yeah. How funny are some of the gangster stuff too? 
you know, some say, some say, but I say. Yeah, it's it's a gag sequence. per it's a gag per minute kind of a movie. It's literally like there's so many yeah. gags thrown in. So the individual strength of the joke stops mattering so much. It's more about the yeah. mood and the way that the the levity and silliness keeps topping itself and and keeps on going. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's really good. Don't get me wrong, and definitely it's better than the seven year itch. Yeah. So that is some like it hot. One of the great enduring films of Billy Wilder. The next film we're talking about. And it's what the last two films we're talking about. Both are Jack Lemmon, Shirley MacLaine films. First being The Apartment, also on the AFI 100 list from 1960. It is starring uh, Lemon MacLaine and Frederick Murray from Double Indemnity. It is about a, a person who works in a very large company, played by Jack Lemmon, who wants to aspire, who wants to succeed, and lends his titular apartment out to senior business executives in order to have flings and extramarital affairs in or in the hopes of climbing the ladder and he of and he himself sets his sights on the Shirley MacLaine character who is an elevator operator in the building I watched this first some good 15 years ago I didn't have fond memories on first rewatch I I, I, I liked the film but I wasn't as on the level of many of these other I remember before we recorded this episode I'm not sure if it was in the recording or off air but um Glenn when we we were talking about Billy Wilder and I said the apartment because I was so excited to rewatch it and to talk about it and Glenn was sort of like uh you know like I just don't like it as many as much as many of his films I think I'm speaking for me and Virat here when I say I think this is just an absolute masterpiece I'm happy to qualify that earlier comments. I have rewatched it since, hmm. and I appreciated this. I was wrong. Um, I, in the context of yeah, I'll admit it. In the context of <laughs> having seen, I, I think a number of other features, so many more, um, experienced life myself, and to have seen Wilder's other filmography, this I agree, it's a masterpiece. Hmm. It's a and a more, and we'll go into individual reasons for discussing it for why it is a masterpiece, but most consequentially for me, this is such a universal story. You could set it at any time, any place. You can make this film virtually with the same script today. It would work. It lands. And I do, I do think Sunset Boulevard is his best film, but um, I, I would say this is second for me. I think, Not I think, too far off. I think he made a lot of good to, and really good films, but... I think these two just stand head and shoulders above the rest of his filmography yeah. and the, the depth of mastery they achieve. If you could bookend his career from like Sunset Boulevard in the beginning of the decade and then the apartment at the end of the decade, it's beautiful. Stunning. Like one of the you best know, runs like, of any filmmaker ever. Exactly. I mean, it's what, what, yeah. And we're, so we alluded to this earlier. We have to acknowledge that Wilder showed a lot of integrity in acknowledging his own cinematic influences. Referenced the last weekend, but another film this film owes an extraordinary debt to is another excellent film from the 30s, Grand Hotel, which there is explicit references to. They show the Jack Lemmon character watching it. It's also a film about spirals and dealing with mental anguish and else. But I don't want to go into too much details. There will be spoilers for the Grand Hotel. Mm. I did not um, but once again, Jack Lemmon here plays an insurance executive, much like uh, Double Indemnity and uh, and beyond. So you have that kind of thing. And the character name, the CD boss, is called Sheldrake. Yeah, played is, by McMurray. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think that's the film producer in really Sunset Boulevard, which is also called Sheldrake in, in that film. Sunset Boulevard, yeah. Um, 
I, I saw an interesting point uh, reading about, about this film on the internet the other day after my rewatch, um, which is, uh, you could call it a hole in the plotting that, you know, executives and big wigs really wouldn't need to borrow some dude's apartment. They, they would have other means of like access to hotels, et cetera. Um, yes. Right. You could, the film kind of has the built in answer to that with like, Oh, we don't want people to see, we want privacy, et cetera, or something. Well, you know, we don't want to be in a bustling place because we're, you know, they're famous executives, but I think ultimately it doesn't really matter because First of all, the script and the filmmaking is so good that I never thought of that in either times I watched it, even though it's such an obvious point. And secondly, it just makes poetic sense. It, it's, could you think of a better metaphor for the sacrifices of personal life that people make to appease their bosses? Yes, but I think it works in two levels. Firstly, I think uh, it's a great societal comment that he's making because I think the film addresses this, especially towards the end with the boss when he's staying at the athletic club. And he doesn't want to take her there. Instead, he wants to take her to an apartment. Can't and take her there. Yeah. And it's, it's not just because of a male-only thing. I think it's the idea that uh, he does... The idea of taking someone to a hotel kind of implicates and is <laughs> a blemish in someone's character while going to a private apartment is, you know, because people of character can do things within an apartment in a home setting, which is less... Uh, uh, which throws less questions and blemishes on one's character I think, in that sense. I think it's successful for a few more reasons. One, they establish very clearly in this film the geography of the orc in relation to the company, the apartment, and the necessity and utility of it being so close. But moreover, yeah. I think it underlines the selfishness and of each of the executives in order to say, we do not give a damn. We don't, we don't want to spend our own money. We'll take advantage of this. Yes. To say, that's hey, exactly. We'll send you up. We'll send you up the ladder. We'll sort you out. And it's fascinating to watch the, their characterizations, each of those executives, the, they're all very charming, culminating the Frederick Murray character, who is a, not a great fellow, but is like a lot of Wilder's leading men, just so effortlessly, Oh yeah, Sonny, I'm your bestie. I've got your back, and it and that is more, that is such a relatable element still today of corporate business work life. For so many. I was going to say what what uh, the same thing you were saying basically in terms of how it makes poetic sense. Just the thing of like, oh, we don't have to free, we don't have to pay, and we get to experience this power dynamic that makes us feel important by having access to this guy's apartment. It's like, yeah, it's free perk of the job because we are higher than you. Why not? Um, yeah. I think this film has a lot to say about the, this, these kinds of power dynamics about the ways that people give up on their dreams in order to validate pro, pro, usually false hope. Um, when you make your life uh, too linked with your career um, especially if it's not a personally fulfilling career, but you're choosing to give it that kind of legitimacy um, to to your spiritual, if you will, self, maybe for lack of other options, loneliness. And I think that philosophy goes hand in hand with how harsh New York seems in this film, where it is, it is not presented in a rosy way. In fact, actually, it's quite a harsh, the climate and the weather, and it, it's all always raining or windy or or just the weather is taking a toll on your mental health as well as it's physically and mentally demanding and punishing in that sense. So 
that compounds this feeling of almost claustrophobia and always sacrificing something uh, to just get by. So, and, and that struggle is, is very real in that sense. So yeah, this film feels very lived in. On the abuse of power by the executives, while this is a very serious matter, Wilder expertly weaves in comedy. There's a great scene where he meets a senior executive and he, he thinks he's in trouble, but no, the executive is trying to leave you the key out of him. It's tense, but it's also incredibly hilarious and plays it like a typical Billy Wilder comedy scene. Also in a, later in the film, in a much more dramatic series of events, he leans in more comedy with um, having characters intrude when they wouldn't ideally. So on the matter of New York, we talked earlier about how Los Angeles and Sunset Boulevard are shot as an isolating place, but here, it's the same, but because New York is so confined, it's even more constricting. The noir, it's shot in black and white. It didn't need to be, but it was wisely done, so it's a good use of it, was used to create the suffocating sense. There's no bustling streets where you're surrounded by people. It just feels overwhelming, and it's the same effect produced by seeing the hordes and lines and lines of people in the insurance office. The Greatest Showman tried this uh, much more sloppily. The producers yeah. tried this in the 2005 film, but no one managed it as well as wider, just seeing the lines and lines of insurance salesmen yeah um it's 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 kind of like king vidor's the crowd which is an early um used an image like that but the way the way wilder shot it has become i think one of the iconic kind of landscape shots in film history you do see it paid homage to very often um I want to get into the visuals of this film a bit, but I also don't want to get off track from what you were saying just then about the way it mixes comedy and drama. Man, that this film is a comedy, right? But it goes to very dark places and it, it has so much depth to it, but it effortlessly weaves in these dark elements oh without... God. And um, Irma LaDuce, which we're going to talk about, is an example of how, how this can go wrong, in my opinion. Somehow, uh, Wilder manages never to make the film feel too dark it never loses the kind of lightness of spirit that defines it as a comedy um and yet it i think deals with a lot of serious issues and gives them the level of uh, seriousness that they deserve no matter of that just briefly the key symbolism there is regards christmas the film is set during christmas time and like shane black subverts it to make a happier time seem there's an underlying bad current behind all this cheerfulness. But it's about it's very the, well done throughout. It's about lonely people. And so making a movie about lonely people at Christmas uh, is, is perfect. It speaks to how that holiday is experienced by a lot of people. I mean, uh, I would say it's, it's the best Christmas movie of all time, which, and it's never comes up in conversation. I mean, we always hear about the Die Hard series or Love Actually, but I feel, honestly, The Apartment is the best Christmas movie. <laughs> the apartment is the best Christmas movie. Eyes wide shut. But yeah, but going going back to it Christmas. doesn't have anything really about Christmas. It's just set. I said set in New York. This movie, yeah. it yeah, um, this movie is in some ways about Christmas. Yes, yeah. but going back to the point ways. you you were making, Chris, about the how it mixes comedy and drama, because I think the most important thing in this film is it it really does catch you off guard when mm. the serious moments do come in. For example, there's a great reveal about the mirror with Frank. Frank Kubelik, who's the protagonist, and when he first notices it's broken, and the line that she says, and I mean, 
it, it is such a throwaway line, but it does kind of catch you off guard into like, oh my God, this just... It's just, absolutely masterful. You know, because you almost take a double back. You're like, did she just say that? And I, you know, almost you had to hear it twice to kind of believe that, oh my God, yeah, she hmm. did. And, An excellent and not overblown use of symbolism. No, the, the central conflict of this film is so compelling and sustains the whole narrative. It gives it this unified feeling and an underlying tension yeah. where it's really about choosing one's own happiness versus selling your soul. Yeah. And, and that's, it's always, it, it's always running underneath and it, it gives this kind of duality and ambiguity for a while to the behavior of Jack Lemmon's character, CC Baxter in yeah. the second half of the movie. Um, it's it becomes kind of wrenching to watch at some points. Yeah, but I mean, again, it's still maintaining the lightness. I, I cannot believe how well he controls the tone in this film. I mean, it, there, one of my favorite scenes is sort of in the first half of the film when uh, Cece Baxter's characters and and they're there, and she, in a, it's a it's a question about whether or not he's going to ask Frank Kubelik out, uh, and then he says that, "Oh no, I'm waiting for I've got a heavyweight date," and he points to someone. And then we see the reveal where he's just, she's waiting for someone else and he's going to actually just go and pick up a newspaper. It is such a beautiful visual gag. In, and mm. it it's works as comedy, drama. but it's actually played for drama. You know, it, it's a comic moment played for drama. What makes this more of a so engaging is that you have two characters who in large part are very sad figures. The film doesn't shy away from that. And it depicts it not judgmentally, it depicts quite openly, especially so for the time. And it gives the prospect of these two people finding some solace in each other very rewarding if it is to happen. It makes it something to aspire to that keeps you as a hook throughout the film. Something you hope for. Um, it also has such an incredible sense of timing and pacing um, in the way characters move through the frame and they interact with each other. Um, both in terms of the comedy and the drama. And as you say, it sometimes uses comic timing in moments of drama. Um, it, it's so beautifully directed just as a drama piece. Um, this film really could have been written for the stage. I think adapting so many plays might have put Wilder now doing an original screenplay again in mind of the theatrical form because it really uses limited locations incredibly well um, and it is it, to some extent driven by the dialogue what dialogue it is the individual interactions that is in this film are so beautifully written oh my um, god yeah yeah like it it is quippy in the ways that you would hope a comedy to be but just enough never too quippy and never too clever for the characters as they're presented um, so that the cleverness of the script overrides the characters. And the characters are just so lovable because they've been conceptualized with that level of depth all throughout. I mean, this, I feel, them. feel this is the perfect Jack Lemmon film. In fact, I feel this is a film which is written for Jack Lemmon mm. because there is no other actor that I can think of who could do that kind of level of bumbling idiot, but still a hopeless romantic and yet a lovable fool and I've balance all three aspects with that quippiness going with it. <laughs> I've seen some people say that um, he's too much of an, a nice guy and uh, it's, it's a bit schmaltzy. I disagree. I think he's... I don't think so. In fact, he's very willing to 
work in his career. Yeah, I, I think he has that dark um, undercurrent to him in terms of selling his soul enough that it balances out the, I think he's just a charming guy. I think it's, it's right. Comparing it to spirit of St. Louis. Now that's a, a too nice guy. This I can believe in. I think it's believable because a lot of people who feel downtrodden or have been taken advantage of in any environment, including work environment can see themselves in this person, the person who is attempting to be slavish in devotion, but ends up being, is appearing as sycophantic or being taken for granted. This is something many people incidentally by no purpose or design of their own experience or a good experience at a point in their lives. And Jack Lemon portrays it as irrespective of uh, being this charming figure on the matter of this being the, a perfect role for Lemon. I'm drawn to his choice of the hat. Um, uh. There is, and the comic timing in that scene, oh in, my God, which is yeah. also tragic. In Irma Laduce, we see um, a character with a not dissimilar getup. We see him wear crazy things in Some Like It Hot. But here, um, imagery that could be used as one-off gag, and is funny, well, at least when he's most confident in it, is used to underline just how, uh, not just sad he feels, but how he doesn't realize how he's perceived by others around him, whether it be his boss, whether it be um, it's Kubelik, who still affirms uh, the, the hat for, the, 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 that the, he looks good in the hat, but it's the chance for him to come to realize, no, um, this is a very shallow reading of myself and how I'm perceived and how I see myself. It's and a one aspect, only one aspect of film that's working on that level. It speaks to his desire to be a social climber for some kind of validation and, and seeking external means of happiness. The, the characterization in this film is just so goddamn layered. And you know what? I see people who, I, I see many friends today of a, of a similar age who, or people I've encountered who um, live not similar lifestyles, whether it be alone or with others, who uh, I don't know anyone who strains their soup through a tennis racket. I do have a tennis racket and I don't plan to use it to strain oh, pasta. But you should have seen my backhand. Analogous for... So the line is so funny. See, that, that's... People, um, I live similar sorts of lives and sometimes very isolated lives that you should see my backhand line is, is so great because that's an example of what I was talking about where the characters make quips that are funny enough to make us laugh, but they're not so clever that it feels like this is just a screenwriter's showcase and look at how clever I am. Um, like a lot of old comedies feel to me. Yeah. Um, it's always completely rooted in an understanding of the characters. Uh, talking about quips and throwaway gags, I mean, some of the side characters which are not primary also get to have incredible, you know, shining moments. For example, the woman Jack Lemon's character meets at the bar when he's completely depressed. And she goes on about, have you heard about the guy in Cuba? And it's just talking about- It's so good, stuff. yeah. It's beautiful. It was 1960. This was before Bay of Pigs, let's remember. Yeah. I know, but it's, it's, it's weird how she's talking about Fidel Castro, about this guy in Cuba. And she goes on about her story. And it's so obvious about how it's staged. And once again, the direction is fantastic about you can clearly see Jack Lemon is so disinterested in the story and she's just so interested and it's just complete opposites of emotional spectrum. Yeah. Her the same scene. At him. Oh God, it's, it, it's wonderful. It's so perfectly directed in terms of just those little moments, every character interaction, the way that it's handled, 
Ah, uh, the um, best I'm, use of mensch. I mean, I never thought I could be like be a mensch. It was <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's great. <laughs> Onomatopoeic, yeah, sure, love it. Um, the turning to some of the darker aspects of the film, the an act that takes place later. We're not. I think. How about we talk about that in spoilers? We talk about that in spoilers. What I'll, what I'll simply say is, there's an act that takes place later, which uh, is depicted in earlier films much more casually and without showing its consequence. This does. This takes an extended act to show the impact of such an action, and it could, a lot of other films go into much more detail. But for the time, it, it took a very mature and studied and more detailed approach to dealing with this issue than many of its most of it, not all of its contemporaries this this follows through with the thread we've been talking about of how wilder was always boundary pushing and ahead of his time in the subject matter that he took on for his hollywood films you know 10 years earlier at sunset boulevard the dark side of hollywood and um show go, making such a harsh media satire as he did in, with ace in the hole and making such a bleak film 10 years later here with the apartment He's doing what he couldn't do in the seven year itch and he's blowing open the door on adultery as a piece of subject matter for the film and showing characters not being scandalized by it, but treating it like it's a casual thing that, that is an everyday occurrence. This was controversial at the time that the apartment was released. The freedom to explore the, that subject matter was a quite a new thing. And I I'm, not enough of an expert here to say whether this was the first time, but I feel like it might be. Um, it's one of the things that makes the film not feel so dated. And yeah, but also I, th- I think this film specifically, it, it it's also shows you the other side of the coin, where it shows you the impact adultery has on uh, on women in the sense where clearly, you know, well, if men see this as an expendable commodity and they can have multiple affairs, uh, you clearly see the impact that has women when they've moved on, especially with the secretary or Mr. Sheldrake and how she feels about it. And also, you know, Ms. Kublik as well. But even the secretary, which is once again a minor role, her character is layered enough that you get to see her perspective, firstly, her being jealous, her being spiteful, and then her accepting the fact that she has, you know, uh, and this beautiful heartbreaking line where she talks about, oh, you know, you've moved on since four years, but you had, you were cruel enough to keep me on while you had other models come by. This, oh my God, that was such... The, the best films by Wilder, I think, are the ones where he gives his female characters more agency. And while this is still ultimately mostly driven by the acts of men and power plays among men, it does allow it, its female characters more of a real identity and also ultimately the choice to um, create major plot shifting events. It's not like Sabrina where Sabrina herself is basically powerless in that narrative. You raised earlier the, uh, these isolating images of the, the, the width um, of the frame being used to show these big empty offices. Um, Sorry, the spacious, uh, very full offices, I should say. Yeah. Visually, this film is so elegant. Uh, I think Wilder's films in the later stages of his career um, tend to be less visually creative when you compare them to the stuff he was doing in the 40s, early 50s. Um, it seems like he stopped caring about that aspect of his direction for one reason or another. Um, and the apartment keeps to the simplicity 
that he'd been working with in that era, but it's deceptively simple. There's so much more going on with the visuals here. Um, there's some really beautiful use of shadow um, to create mood in, in some of the the key conversations in this. The, the the big the way that the big wide frame is used to isolate characters um, and sometimes isolate masses of characters. I mean, just the wide frame. When we, wide frame when we just look at the the visual gag itself. For example, there is a recurring gag about getting in the right elevator and which one is going up and down. And Jack Lemmon's character has to pick, and often. Uh, he wants to get in the character with Miss Kubelik because she's the uh, elevator operator, mm. but he keeps getting in the wrong elevator, so he keeps missing her. But it's it's wonderful about how that widescreen element is used to show uh, his emotional state and how he's picking the wrong one, and he goes in the wrong elevator. It's like, oh, oh, wait, no, you're the other one. So he comes around, but you see that in widescreen, so you can see the whole action play out, and it's always kind of wonderful to see. Uh, so directorially in terms of that blocking, it's fantastic. Is this the best movie ever to win Best Picture? Oh my God. Or did, 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 did this win? It won Best Picture. Won Best Picture. Which one? Godfather? Godfather did. I prefer this to The Godfather. Yes. Oh, I need it. I don't. I, the thematic breadth of The Godfather with the quality, not just the quality of performances, but the quality of multiple performances, the epic span of the tale, the quality of the cinematography. I appreciate how good it is here. I, I would say that The Godfather is more of a cinematic triumph even than this. The, 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 it's apples and oranges, really, because you're talking about the epic scope of The Godfather, whereas The Apartment is really about layered uh, layers of conflict and metaphor and commentary about the human condition within a quite simple uh, premise and limited locations. It's two different approaches, really. I think The Apartment is the last sort of small film to win Best Picture, if we can look at that. You know, the one that we keep talking about, the return of the small film, uh, because I think the Academy has completely given up on that idea. Now it's only going to award Best Picture to kind of triumph into a big canvas kind of movie. There is the idea of uh, a film is more important because of how big it is. And that's yeah. been around for a long time. But I think the apartment at least thankfully bucked that trend, which is a good thing. But on- Marty uh, won on, Best Picture. Marty won Best Picture. That was five years before. On, 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 on. I'm thinking of the really great, Casablanca won Best Picture. That's a great film. It's a great film. I'm happy to, I, I do think it's a, I do think it's a superior film. There's been, hmm, it's no. tough. The so other what, thing, I'm sorry, go on, Chris. Oh, no, no, no. I was just saying I, I like this more than Casablanca. <laughs> yeah. But Don't get me wrong. Casablanca is fantastic. I'm not, I'm not out to trash Casablanca or The Godfather. The, the thing... Uh, I struggle to think of a film post-Godfather which could even compare that one best picture. The thing why I like The Apartment, and I think it's interesting in that sense, is about the tone itself. I think it's more difficult, and this is a personal thing, I'm not dissing dramatic roles in, in any sense of whatever, but I think they're easier to find, but it's difficult to find a comedic performance with as much nuance and layering, which also has dramatic undertones. It's I so, wouldn't, Jack, it and sweet. all the characters in this, in this sense, yes, this is a comedic, it's a comedic film, but it's not a comedy. I wouldn't call the apartment a comedy by any sense of means. It was defined as a comedy at the time, and it still fits basically within the generic mold of the comedy, even though it yeah. has this massive underlying current of sadness. The 
dramatic sequence that I referred to obliquely earlier where a major event happens, it's followed by Chris. Oh, do we want to get into that more in spoilers? If, if we're moving towards spoiler territory now anyway? Sure. Do you want to just do spoilers? Let's introduce it. Let's give some closing wrap ups on it because we're going to move to Emma Deuce and we can just give some comments for the spoiler part now. All right. I, I, I don't know anything to say, but it's not in the realm of spoiler territory. Let's uh, let's just say that's the apartment. Um, that's the apartment. It's in my top ten films of all time. I always love to watch it. Probably for me as well, um, especially after watching it again now. But uh, we want to discuss the ending, and Glenn has some more criticisms related to that. So later in the episode, uh, if you stick around for the spoiler segment right at the end after Irma LaDuce, not too far to go now. That that's our next and last film, and we don't have too much to say about it. Uh, we will go go more in depth to Glenn's major criticism of it, and uh, yeah, stick yeah. around if if you've we, seen the film. We will we'll come back later after you watch it. Hopefully, after our glowing recommendation. Yeah, do see it and please do. Yeah, and we and we also have in the spoiler section uh, more praise to heap on it. There are sec- there are other elements to that deserves a lavish recommendation. The last Billy Wilder film we're talking about is also a Jack Lemmon, Shelley McLean film, Over the Deuce. It came from 1961. It is set in Paris. It, oh, it's 63. 63. Oh, sorry, excuse me, it is 63. It took a break for a few years. 63. No, no, no. Did, oh, yeah, did, no, there's a film between then. Sorry, one, two, one, three. Two. One, two. one, two. One, two. I think, oh, one, two, three. One, two, three, right. And it is about a police officer played by Lemmon, who, a very zealous one, who is tasked with policing neighborhood um, where a number of women engaged in the sex industry. Are. It's a red light district red light as well district. as a, uh, it's just a working class kind of area. And it's about his relationship with members of this community and in particular Shirley DeClaine, who also works in the red light district. It's a fun comedy. It's a good comedy. There are excellent visual sequences, um, exceptional use of color um, I like where characters, where actors play multiple roles. Certainly Jack Lemmon gets to exercise some of his more extreme comic abilities here. It's more than serviceable. I like this. I don't think it holds up compared to, in comparison to a lot of the other films we've discussed, either as time has aged it or in terms of its quality. Having said that, I still enjoyed this movie. Yeah, it's a really weird movie. Did you guys find that? It's really strange. It's weird that he reverted to, as we discussed earlier, the traditional theater style sets after he'd done so many ultra realist pictures when he clearly had the budget to make it on a real, on a whole soundstage. I think he wanted, I think he wanted to work with that kind of unreality and that kind of aesthetic of golden age musicals, which gets me to one of the weirdest things about this movie. Um, Watching it, not aware of it, it, its background. I thought this really feels like a musical both in terms of this staging, the really artificial sets, um, and also in terms of the pacing where it seems like things happen slowly. There's moments of interruption between the plot progressing dramatic moments where the music is allowed to just play for a long time in the background as characters move slowly. And it's long. It's two hours and 27 minutes, which is very long too long for a film which is this slight and silly but it's something we're conditioned to expect with the musical format because it's padded out with the songs and it it has the general sense of spectacle so that no matter how silly it is people have come to expect and uh, forgive a certain 
Lunga, you know, Lunga is about it, right? Um, but this is based on a musical, but they cut the songs. When I realized that, everything fell into place. Like Jersey but it, Boys. But it's so weird because they kept all the other aspects of the form and with the, the kind of the, the pacing of it and the, the way the orchestral score is given so much prominence when nothing's really happening on screen for large stretches of it, I thought, why? Why were the songs cut? I didn't realize it was based on a musical. Now it makes a lot more sense. It does, right? Because as it, knowing it's based on a musical, but it's been adapted this way. Um, Neither had I. And there's certainly upbeat bits to it that will be more befitting of a musical. The sequence, I, I believe this could exist separate to a musical where Shelby McLean's character jumps on the table and dances that clearly could easily and probably was in a light song, of part of a musical right? number. And Why we, not we, include it? I'm not sure. We would have forgiven some of the silliness of this more, I think, if it was portrayed as that extra step removed from reality as, as actually a musical. Are you guys with me on that? Like, would you yeah. go with it a bit more as a musical? Because a lot of those scenes are about the characters just doing exposition dumps about how they feel about the world. And yeah. those would work so much better as songs. In and this probably were songs. And yeah, and the music is, is actually drawn from the musical. The, the orchestral score is mostly okay. taken from the musical. Then it should have been... Just Weird, right? Yeah. Like, why give that those pieces of music place to just play out over nothing instead of just the song version? Yeah. yeah. Um, My favorite thing about this film is a visual gag involving water, which I've always wanted to recreate. I oh, it's so good. But yeah. it's, Fish out of water. Uh, stayed in my mind. McLean's great in this. It's playing a very different role from Miss Kubelik. Uh, okay, she is great in this. There's a wonderful scene in the back of a van, which is very funny. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. There are some really good um, visual gags in this. Uh, there, there is some funny stuff. There's also some stuff sometimes that it doesn't land. Like um, I was, was talking before about the mastery of tone in relation to the apartment when weaving in the darker elements. There's places here where the, that control over the tone just misses. And it's, it's like, oh, this is like for brief moments, even though it's such a silly film, it feels kind of off-puttingly dark or mean, like in some of the fight scenes. Like, the, oh, oh yeah. did you guys the, feel that? Like the, there's moments when the, the tone just kind of crashes into like, oh, oh I don't know that I like this. When, especially when the Jack Lemmon character is actually physically roughed up. And, and it's clearly obvious that, it's that's not just a punch up it's actually quite deliberate yeah very different to the apartment yeah very strange film and like i said before it's really long for how silly it is right like yeah i I was shocked when i realized there was another i didn't know how long it was when i started and when i realized there was another hour to go yeah it should be a 90 minute film it's not doing it's two and a half hours yeah what um especially because there's a point where there isn't that much progression. I, I, I just thought there was a false ending at least three times in the second yeah. half, and I thought the film ended. I do like that it. Um, there is some of his boundary pushing in terms of tone, despite me saying that sometimes it doesn't work. In terms of um, this quite serious material, in some ways, showing like the dissolution of the relationship. I actually like that he takes that. Uh, that step in in such a frivolous film up until that point. The one of the weird things about this is Shirley MacLaine's casting. She's great. She sells the role, but doesn't again 
it just makes so much more sense when you realize that it was meant to be Jack Lemmon and Marilyn Monroe. Wait, what? Yeah, it was meant to be Monroe, but then she died before production went in. Oh. And yeah, so Wilder. Yeah. So Wilder replaced her. Didn't didn't know that. Okay. Right. So Wilder replaced her with McLean. Um, maybe because he knows she has chemistry with Lemon and he'd worked with her before and enjoyed it. Yeah. So quick fix, Shirley McLean, right? But wouldn't not to say that McLean isn't attractive. Don't get me wrong. I think McLean is absolutely gorgeous, and she again and, and great she, in this she film. Did, she does sell the role, but yeah, but I yeah, guess like but, this was a role that was tailor made for. Yeah, because the the character is meant to be like number one ranked prostitute that every man wants to see, like the queen of this town, like you don't necessarily believe that about McLean like you do about Marilyn Monroe. And that's not a slight on McLean at all. It's just, she's not the, the universal sex goddess type yeah. that it's Monroe also, is. It's more a slight on the, the tag. It is like the number one goddess that everyone right. kind of thing. It's yeah. more that, you know, to sell that tag, you got to have a pre-built hype that you have to easily buy into this kind of thing. Yeah. I like I could believe that McLean is is the prostitute that would appeal to people of a certain taste, right? But like not like the one that everyone wants that's always booked out, right? <laughs> like like I'm not I, I, I'm I'm just talking about I'm I'm not talking about personal preferences in terms of attractiveness here to be clear i'm just talking about the, the kind of archetypes they represent mclean yeah. you know mclean is kind of like the quirky um yeah she's a bit, she's a bit stranger the, looking and a bit stranger in the, the personality that she presents she's and a interesting i'm kind of thing the original manic, manic pixie dream girl some have said yeah. yeah and she did have the haircut too so yeah mm. um what else is there to say about this movie not much. Um, Not much. It's a, I, it's a I, downer I after the apartment. Recommend it, given it is two and a half hours. It's a bit of a slug at times. I sorry, slog. I would I would recommend the rest of his filmography prior. This is for purists who want to see all the Wilder, like I was when I watched all the Wilder's films. All of them. I've there's a couple I missed. Right. One, two, three. Um, and yeah, the, Love Sherlock Holmes. I haven't seen. Did you see the front page? No, I haven't. Okay, there's more than a couple. Right. This was his, the reason we're including this is um, because it's his last big commercial success. Wow. Yeah. After, after this. He it films was, for a long time after. Yeah, but because he was such a legend, um, it's interesting that if you look at the poster for his final film, Buddy Buddy, it's like, yeah, Jack Lemmon and Walter Monroe together again. And Billy Wilder's name is not on the poster. Like it's there in the credits. If you, you know, get in really close and read it. But in his heyday, his name was almost as yeah. big as the stars. Yeah, it was he, he was like household name. It's like, I want to make, I want to see that it, Billy Wilder's in it. And it was like that for a long time after uh, Irma LaDuce. But then he, by that point, he'd had so many flops that to not even have his name on the poster anymore and have Hollywood not be willing to give him another chance anymore is incredible. If, if you're looking for a comparison point, I'm not saying in terms of talent, I'm saying in terms of notoriety, I'd say JJ Abrams sort of level. Everyone, right. But you know, but JJ Abrams never had a 20, a two decade long career. That, like I, I'm not disputing that. I'm saying in terms of being house on their level of fame and just people knowing and expecting his sort of films or Though he wasn't quite on this level because he wasn't quite the self-promoter, Alfred Hitchcock. 
right? It's like it's that era where it it's like oh, it's a film by this person and exactly. I think Hitchcock classics Hitchcock, and he has a brand. God, we've never properly spoke about Hitchcock. That would be a hell of an episode. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh, I I yeah, I also made the habit of watching everything from blackmail or well, blackmail through the end. Man, you could have done that at the Ritz if COVID hadn't ruined everything. The Ritz it, were playing a, almost every single Alfred Hitchcock film every Sunday. Up to what Wednesday. the man knew too much or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but still, like a two-decade career from 1944 to 1964. But double indemnity to. You know, longer uh 40 I, we, I haven't seen it none of us have but uh three graves to cairo from 1943 i've heard is one of his better ones okay um right before double indemnity and he also um co-wrote a bunch of successful scripts before he moved into being a director he actually considered himself primarily as a writer and started directing and and, and that um, show because are... yeah but he started directing um as a lot of screenwriters following him have because he was sick of seeing uh, takes on his scripts that he that weren't in line with his own sensibilities from directors, and he wanted to have the power to shape the way the story was told. Um, that's that's why he moved into direction, not you know. Um, but on that note, I it does feel like in the latter half of the, his career, as I was saying when we were talking about the apartment, he kind of gives up a little bit with regard to the direction not in the apartment but you totally see that in um Deuce, right i found this kind of visually boring as we've said there's a few good sight gags there's a really nice um backward zoom setting up the and then just the staging of the gag itself in the back of the van that glenn was referring to or the the umbrella in the water moment or the, a escape sequence later on um there are interesting visual things but a lot of it is just kind of visually flat i singled out the sequence in the water because it is so distinctly wilder but otherwise this is a unusually generic film for him it feels like for the most part had been shot like any by anyone else and a lot of that is due to the static way that the traditional play sets are shot they're shot like they're on a three wall sitcom and usually the camera is dolly panning along the side And and when you move between rooms in one set you move along the wall and you know you're looking at it from the same point of view it's like the lazily built sets that wilder shied away from uh post sun post double indemnity post sunset boulevard and the reversion is very obvious and it affects the way he places the camera it makes it much more constricted but which is unlike so much if not all else what he did in the 1950s and 1950s and the thing is this kind of completely constructed set actually allows for absolute freedom in terms of what you can do with the camera. Uh, you know, I was watching singing in the rain again the other night and because it was on TV and some of the camera, yeah, some of the camera work in that is absolutely incredible, you know, because they had 100% freedom and here Wilder has a kind of freedom. He hasn't had in years to put the camera anywhere and be expressionistic in the way that he uses it. And he just doesn't care. It's kind of sad. Um, but yeah, there, there, we've been pretty down in this film, but there are really nice things about it. The chemistry between Lemon and McLean and the way he's playing his, the a kind of sweetheart character, like in uh, the apartment in his early interactions with her, uh, her are actually really nice. Um, I, I think actually they both kind of play characters similar to what they played in the apartment. Would you say that? Yeah, that's true. 
but also like even though they they're so tonally similar i think lemon and mclean make such a great pair because they're both quirky in their own way yeah that they're quirky in the sense that it's like a puzzle fitting with another puzzle it's like oh your quirky matches my quirky but like it's like and Iliad, it's non-judgmental. It's not like they're mean to each other because they're both quirky. And it's like, ha, 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 you're quirky, you're mean. It's like it's the almost ba- like they're empathetic. They they're empathetic towards each other because they recognize that they're both somewhat misfits in this world, which doesn't mm-hmm. recognize them and give them the love they deserve. In that own. respect, you can buy the Irma Ledoux, You can buy McLean is Irma Ledoux, Irma the Sweet, because she's such a sweet person in this yeah. story, right? So I, I guess in that way, I guess it was a nice retrospective repositioning mm. from Molly Monroe to Shelley McLean because I, uh, yeah, because I think that's the only other person I could buy being mm. like, it's just a, so pure, innocent and sweet. Just a different kind of take on it. But yeah. to note, as with a general trend in most of Wilder's films, the women have basically no agency and it's really about the machinations of men and yeah. their ploys against each other and the the impact that has on the woman who is an innocent it's most of his films uh play out that way and i think the ones that give women more interesting characters tend to be his his best right like sunset boulevard and the apartment women absolutely have power to shape the narrative in those more so in sunset and double indemnity as well uh sunset boulevard more so but it's there's definitely strength in the apartment of the female characters that his other films about power plays among men for romance don't show so that is evolutive and we should we promised a spoiler discussion for the apartment we did as well as witness for the prosecution which we'll be doing last but even though it's bucking out chronological order yeah you can skip that part and, and keep listening if you like. So the apartment. We'll run through the story just so for those who have not seen it. But following, it turns out that when he saw the mirror, he of course realized that Miss um, Kubelik was having an affair with Fred McMurray, the senior executive, and use, Fred McMurray was using his apartment to do so. Um, when for, One night when Fred McMurray leaves the apartment, she Miss Kubelik overdoses on sleeping pills, and then a lot of the uh, an act of the film is Jack Lemmon's character spending time with her, helping her recover, but also covering for his boss and explaining to his neighbors that oh, it was him uh, who had her on the date. While all along, other women are either there or attempting to, or other people are attempting to attend the apartment. She later decides that to when she's debating throughout the film whether to remain with the Frederick Murray character after two after it is revealed that his wife has kicked him out of the house when she found out by the secretary that he was having multiple affairs following that when she found out ultimately that the Jack Lemon character refused to use ladies Frederick Murray use his apartment for his affairs ultimately she decides to pursue the Jack Lemmon character. The film ends with them playing gin rowing together, implicitly that they will begin a relationship together. And with um, the final famous line, shut up and deal. It's, shut up and it's, deal. It's, yeah. I think, still better than uh, some like it hot. I think, it is, it is I think so too. And it has, it has some depth to it that I'd like to get into discussing in a bit. But first, let's hear it from Glenn. I'm, I'm going to say that in our lifetime, we will see a remake of The Apartment set in, um, I don't know where, 
but it'll Silicon be, Valley. Um, no, I think it's going to be somewhere that in an apartment as well to do. And I think there's going to be, it's going to end with them saying, just shut up and deal. It may not be cards, maybe something else, but there will be, uh, there will be a version pretty loyal in respects to what we saw in 1960. Maybe. Um, I um, hope not. To, to bring it back to the conflation of the darker elements and the humorful elements, I forgot what I said, elements, um, the sequence where he is attempting, to, where he's trying to help her recover from such a serious event, but at the same time, he's dealing with the lady he's brought home, he's dealing with his neighbours, he's dealing with trying to protect his boss. All of those elements belong in slapstick. Not just slapstick, they belong in screwball comedy. And they're playing in the screwball comedy in this environment, and it, wreaks, it, it underlines his desperation, and it makes, it, it makes his elements darker it hinges it on darker aspects that's the mastery of tone so well together yeah just th- that's the mastery of tone we've been talking about to bring in those slapstick elements while not undermining the serious of this of the situation and to keep the film sprightly and effervescent after you've had the uh, the love interest attempting suicide it's no small feat it is. And, and even the first discovery of when he comes back into the apartment and sees her in his bedroom, it plays like a slapstick scene and then the realization that she has no pulse and he rushes out to basically get the doctor. Yeah. That shift in tone is like that. And also the, the suspense between his sort of slow, drunken dancing with the lady he's upset about her husband in Cuba coming home for his something you couldn't do in Hayes Code's time, what seems to be, like it's a setup for a one night stand basically. And then yeah. discovering this again, like tense, yeah. funny, tragic. And uh, another one, which is about the shaving and the razor and how, <sighs> you know, just, just, just simple thing. Well, it, 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 but it was such a delicate scene where it's not overplayed, but he just, Smallly and sweetly, just takes away all the sharp objects away from there, and and then it's a rec- it comes back to it because when he tries to shave the next you know the next day or whatever, there's no razor in it, so he has to put it back in, you know. And so it, and the film flips it around it marvelously when it comes to the champagne in the very last scene in the film, when she thinks it's the gum. Yeah. When she's running up the stairs. For the record, guys, I keep getting your internet connection is unstable messages, and I keep missing large swaths of the conversation. So. I'll be more, if I need you guys to repeat something, I'll be better in editing. But anyway, what, what's the bit about the gun? Thing, and the, the, it's analogous to later in the film where she hears the champagne go off and thinks it's a gun and runs up the stairs to protect him and it ends oh, yeah. with a comedy beat where the champagne, he has just the, champ, the great shot of the champagne just flowing out of the bottle. Very funny. We worked in the comedy. <laughs> and another thing I adore about the ending is that a lot of these fil- films from this era would want to end on the most upbeat note. Everything is old. Everything is happy. It ends on a uptick. It ends on a nice note, but it's not saying that everything is the best. It's saying that things had the prospect of getting better. It's that these characters are now together. And while things aren't perfect together, they can improve. It's a yeah. wonderful note. It's an as- it's importantly, it's not a high note, but it's an aspirational note to end on. It's a key distinction. Absolutely. Great credit um, to the film. There's a huge, amount of depth in the way that she says shut up and deal and doesn't say I love you. I, I think she 
doesn't love him. She wants to give him a chance. I think she, she sees value in him and she's in a desperate situation and she, she knows how, how good a person he can be. So she wants to try. I mean, this is as realistic a take on love as anything, because if we go back previously in the film, she continuously talks about how she keeps falling for the wrong kind of men. And especially how she, and she especially says like, why can't I fall in love with a man like you? which is deliberately calling out the fact that even if she wants to love him, she can't force herself to fall in love with him because she doesn't. I, she still, part of her still loves the Frederick Murray guy, even though mm. no, she knows. Yeah. Yeah. And she, even though she knows that how Sheldrake. much. Would, yeah. Sheldrake, even though she knows how much of a dick he is, she just can't help herself to love him. And she just, you know, it's acknowledging the fact that you can't just force yourself to love someone, even though someone can be the nicest person there is. In less skilled hands, this could easily turn into a self-indulgent wank-off about nice guys finishing last and all the jerks that the, the women fall for. But there's a complexity in that, first of all, McLean is rebelling against her bad treatment. Secondly, she's willing to give... Um, the, she's willing to give... CC Baxter a, a chance if only he betters himself. Um, it, it's not just about the, it, it's, it, yes, it shows that Baxter's a, a nice, lovable guy, but he's also, he's very flawed in the depth to which he's willing to sell out his own happiness and his own personal life uh, for the attaining of this nebulous corporate success goal. Um, that, that that he's not so nice and that she has, that her choices, I think, are to, to an extent validated and respected by the script means that it avoids a very easy pitfall for this kind of narrative to fall into. I feel the ending is still a bit bittersweet and I think it works. I think that, so too. In that sense, especially because if you look at it, technically, C.C. Baxter doesn't have a job and clearly by the end of it, I don't think she does either because she's walked out on Sheldrake and Sheldrake seems to be the kind of man who's vindictive enough to kick out anyone uh, mm. once they're out of his circuit. So she does that. he does that with his secretary. So we know that that's the kind of thing that he would do. So clearly they're both out of a job, but they both would be aspiring for a better life, even though not financially or economically, but in a different kind of sense. But we also know from the movie that New York is a harsh place to survive. So it is yeah. clearly showing that it's not all hunky-dory for, for this couple uh, in, in whichever form. That's what they're doing together. It's a nice theme to end on. Before I get into my criticism of the film, I'd just like to note one very fun meta intertextual element, which is the appearance of, uh, she looks like Marilyn Monroe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, really. Nice and then that character when, is doing when, this when, heavy Marilyn Monroe impression. The great deep voice, the deep husky. I, I wonder if Wilder wished he could get Monroe in there for for a cameo bit. Honestly, watching it back, I didn't remember that scene, and I was wondering before she turned around, is that Marilyn Monroe? Yeah, I think knowing that he had a history of working with her, Wilder was probably playing with the audience a bit, like. Have they really gotten, is she going to appear and be a huge character now? Or has they really gotten Monroe in for this tiny bit part? No, nope, she was way too big at this point to show up for a cameo. Of making misfits and yeah. bust off a film, which I'll actually talk about in a sec. 
um, my this isn't a major detraction in context of everything we discussed, given how masterful this film is. And I think it's certainly less of an issue in the context of dealing with a character who is very isolated, very alone, experienced a lot of issues, and is in so many senses very, very vulnerable and looking for human companionship and all. Um, I, however, do ha- take issue with a couple of events of the film, most, uh, including the end where we see a very quick turnaround from her being with the Fred McMurray character to immediately deciding, I want to go after, pursue, and be with separate, entirely separate to this man, the Jack Lemmon character. It's a very, yes, it's brought on by a specific event of selflessness that she learns of, but it's still a very quick about turn. I compare it to the a scene in a film, third act of a film I don't like, which is Bus Stop, where a character makes a, a very similar about turn. I think it's more extreme pronounced in that circumstance. I think it's less believable. I think in that sense, that in that example, they were going for an overly happy ending and there wasn't necessarily the grounding or analogous characters. So I think it's much worse in bus stop. I, I don't think it's a overly a problem because we do learn a lot of his characters. I, under, I appreciate that with a little more grounding, this is a circumstance that could happen, but I think it happens very quickly. I think she's willing to forgive aspects of what at least appear to forgive aspects of what Jack Lemmon's character does very, very quickly. And it's not the only time in the film we see this. We see it near the very beginning when he's walking with her outside the elevator and he lets slip that he's actually been stalking her by all definitions. That moment sat, sat weirdly with me too, where it's like, I'm a stalker and she's not creeped out by him. Yeah, it's like, I, oh, I'm I, okay with it. Yeah. I largely disagree with the former thing you were saying, but um, we'll get into that. Was there more you wanted to say? No, just that um, those two elements of the film and... They bear each other out a bit. It bothered me that uh, she was absolutely okay with him being a stalker. And then later, the very quick... I'm not saying the about turn is wrong. I just think I'd appreciate the film going for two hours at this point. But it happens almost immediately. It doesn't feel quite the same as the shoehorned... I don't think it's shoehorned happy ending. It doesn't feel like the shoehorned happy endings of many a Hollywood picture. But it certainly fits within that tone. Just about before we get back to what you were saying, um, man, that that stalker moment totally fits into what I was saying about the you know stereotypes about nice guys, right? Like yeah. actually, you're a creep. But anyway. but I, I think uh, there are certain things which kind of help the film in this regard in in some sense and help alleviate our fears about the stalker scene as well. And if you know in the beginning, uh, Jack Lemmon's character, Mr. Baxter, does ask her out, and we we do know that she's not interested in the sense that he he's waiting for her at the, at, at the movies and she doesn't turn up. She's uh, interested. It's just that that she is torn by Sheldrake. She's no, willing I, to give her give her, give him a shot. I don't think so. I think it's more like you know well, she's just trying to be nice to be like I I have a prior Maybe. engagement. I have a prior engagement, but I don't want to say no to you directly, kind of thing. But, but also, I think she's she's at the point where she's kind of had it with Sheldrake, and she's it's not that. I think she's at the point where it's just like, yeah, whatever, why not? If yeah, you say and, you want to ask her, yeah, sure, I'll give it a go. It's just that yeah. when Sheldrake does his, you know, I really do love you thing and please stay with me, it's like, okay, fine. You know, yeah, like she also, never gave it that much seriousness, yeah. but she was willing to give it, give maybe a date with this, yeah. this guy who's interested in her show. But also, like it's established previously before the stalker thing that clearly it's not just as a stalker stalker, that's also an exaggeration that Jack Lemon's character is just put on trying to play it cool 
where it's like because he it's trying to convince her that I've noticed so many things about you, and I I clearly do know as much about you, and I've no, noticed you every day in the elevator kind of thing. But he's trying to play it cool as if like ah oh, that's just because I've looked you up in the in you know in the in the books and stuff. But still yeah, doesn't make it okay or charming, I would say. Oh, it's not it's not charming at all. But yeah, it is within the run run run. Yeah. run moment yeah. I, I know it, it is anyone. I, know, I know it is but it, it is fitting in his character arc to say something like that because he's so lonely pathetic and bumbling and he's like, a bit of a stupid guy really he's a bit the, of a stupid the movie guy. is about him deciding to finally stand up for himself stop um taking stop being taken advantage of so much yeah so yes rising up. and and that that actually is a great point to bring back to the about turn moment which i feel glenn feels like it's too sudden I don't think it is. I think throughout the film, the real conflict for Fran and Shirley MacLaine's character is her not being sure whether C.C. Baxter is a pushover or whether he can actually stand up for himself. So she, her main conflict is whether or not, yes, if I decide to actually go out with this guy, does he even have the belief in himself? Uh, I agree. Whether or not, before he can even love me, does he even believe in himself? That he does he even love himself to be able to love me? Yeah, because I, her, her main problem is that she feels broken. She doesn't love herself, so she wants someone who at least who knows how to love himself. Yeah, so that he can he can teach her that. Yeah, Glenn um, predicted most of my counter arguments to what he said when he was saying he can appreciate the position that Fran's in, where she's sad and desperate and lonely, and she's recently committed suicide. Sorry. <laughs> She's recently attempted suicide, and this is this isn't corpse bride. Um, yeah, I'm, that was last uh, week. Uh, yeah, that was. Oh God, sorry. It's it's now two a.m. Uh, forgive forgive us. A little We're bit. a little bit more low energy than we might otherwise be. Yeah, um, and a little bit more scattered. Um, okay. I, yeah, she is in that position where she's recently attempted suicide, and I think she is desperate for someone to look after her yes it is very sudden in the way it's depicted on screen i think this is just a a matter of suspension of disbelief in bringing things to a swift conclusion um i i agree that it would be more satisfying if there was a kind of slower playing out of these events um and her change in part but I agree with Virat that I think it makes sense to me that at the end she knew Sheldrake was a jerk, that that she was going back with Sheldrake, even though she knew that he wasn't really being with her because he really wanted to, but because he'd been forced out of forced into that. Um, I think I think she was in a, in a desperate position. It was basically you know without agency or control in her life, and she felt like she was just kind of going through the motions. Um, as it shows at the end when she's saying, you know, an, another year, another, you know, I don't think she, she at this point, she d- doesn't love Sheldrake anymore and she's not interested in him, um, but needs someone. And as Virat said, I think the, the main conflict for her has been, well, she enjoys the time that she spends with Baxter in his apartment. She ultimately sees him um, as being a reflection of herself and the things she doesn't like about herself. As she says um, that there are people who 
uh, you know, take advantage of or, or the people who are taken from. And she sees or a schmuck. Or get took, yeah. Or get took, yeah. She sees a schmuck who's being taken advantage of by the very same guy who's taking advantage of her. And so I can buy that hearing, especially given the position she's at with Sheldrake and given the, the vulnerable, precarious position she's in, in terms of her personal life and her mental health, I can totally buy that she would decide, okay, I'm going to give this guy the chance. I think, I think if not for the position she was in, it, the uncertainty and still being shaken up with Sheldrake um, and the feeling that this guy is willing to sell out his personal life and sell his soul to this degree is what held her back from giving Baxter a chance. I could buy that she would do it learning that that's not who he is. Okay. So Anymore. Um, to each of those points on the matter of bringing it to a conclusion and a suspension of disbelief, I don't know. It's still too to- much. Don't get me wrong. It's still too fast. I don't normally say this about a film, but even at two hours, I would gladly have spent more time with these characters in order to bring this to more satisfactory conclusion. Me too. It, it could have been two and a half hours way better than friggin' Amala Deuce. I, I agree that uh, it was very swift. And I, know, I agree that this, it brought on a suspension of disbelief. But I don't think at any point in the film, in a very grounded, very realistic film that, as I said, could take place in any time. Otherwise, ask for suspension of disbelief. And this uh, operates as a um, jump and tone and style of storytelling, which I wasn't satisfied with. Um, and yep, Chris. Oh, I think I just think if you look at the running times of films, they're almost always two hours. I think he very uh, strongly tried to keep it to two hours, slightly over, slightly under. Um, I think he just felt pressure to wrap it up, and but I, I'm speculating here. For me, for me, it was basically that I buy this series of events, given the context. I just don't buy the exact representation on screen. I, I want to address the other issue, but Virat. No, I because I, I literally looked at the clock for the for the last act, you know, and you know before she, uh, uh, before she goes back home again, and it was literally eleven minutes left before the film ended, and I'm like. Oh my God, still a lot of things need to happen mm. in the rewatch. And I'm like, how is, and they, that, so that definitely felt like, oh my God, to wrap everything up in a neat bow in those 11 minutes, that, that was a lot of story. <laughs> um, to Virat's point about how she wants him to stand up to this person, how it's impetus for going to him, I agree. Um, for reasons discussed, I believe it should have taken place, it should have been taken place over a more elongated act. We should have got more focus on it. Certainly I would have appreciated more focus on it. I would have gladly spent more time with these characters. But it doesn't, I think, as was said, take place over the course of the whole film. The true dynamic with um, Sheldrake and the Jack Lemmon character only really appears to her um, at the point that she's ready to leave the apartment. The dynamic isn't, well, it's evident to him, doesn't apparent to her to much later. Certainly there is the confrontation, certainly there is the confrontation in New Year's Eve in the office, but I, it's not something, Chris. I was going to say, I reckon for the entirety of her stay at the apartment, she's feeling that dynamic with Sheldrake because pretty much right from when she wakes up, when she's recovering, there's all this like, oh, we've got to keep it a secret. You know, we've got to protect Mr. Sheldrake stuff going on. So I think during that whole time, as he's being nice to her, she's thinking, oh, well, it's just because he wants to keep a lid on things to appease his boss. I, I accept that. Okay, I accept that, yes. 
but we've seen this more and multiple other instances, including at the New Year's Eve party of him refusing to stand up for himself and standing up for Mr. Sheldrake. And yes, one extreme incidence of him going the opposite direction, but it's the first instance of such. It's over a very short period of time. It's not over the whole course of the film. It's over days, as was alluded to earlier. This film takes place over only all of a couple of weeks. And suddenly there is an about shift in how she is sees the trajectory of a lot of her life. I think it's too abrupt. Again, I don't think this is implausible. I could have seen this pan out over longer, but we see it pan out over a very immediate, a too immediate period of time. It is too abrupt, especially because, as you say, the rest of the film lets character dynamics and personality traits emerge, as well as changes of heart of the characters emerge gradually. It's strange to suddenly be like, yep, let's just like wrap it all up. Um, I, I don't disagree. But, I don't think um, it's that gradual. If you look at it, the, the film trajectory is still from Christmas Day to New Year. So it's right, still but, over a week. But in terms of the, the pacing, though, it feels like we Fair get enough. to, yeah, get to know the characters and feel a progression. One thing, though, that I think sells it a little more than um, what you were saying is it's uh, whether she realizes the significance of it is that it's explicitly stated that he not only is he not allowing Sheldrake to use his apartment anymore, he says, like, especially not for Miss Kubelik. So I, I think it's important there that Miss Kubelik realizes that not only is he standing up for himself, but it's suggesting that he recognizes the seriousness of what happened to her and what she's gone through, and he cares for her for reasons beyond appeasing the boss. I think it's made clear in that moment that it's, it's not just this, the guy is, is finally learning not to be such a fool. It, it's also that she, um, he, he sees the value in her and it's a time when she doesn't see value in herself and she's not convinced the person she's with sees value in her either. That is a fantastic point because Shelrick actually says, I don't know what he's got against you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and then, then that's what actually piques her interest. Because yeah. until that point, she's very bored. And then even when he tells her that he's not refusing to, he's refusing to use, let anyone use the apartment, she's not that interested. He's like, oh, okay, fine. But when he says, especially, you know, when it comes to you, and it's like, oh, what do you mean? So that's when it actually, you know, she realizes that someone sees her as truly special. And because she's never seen herself as having any kind of value, she sees herself as broken and that, you know, she kind of loads herself to some extent. Yeah. So I think that, that's, it sells it for me more. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 still, I do still have trouble accepting the extent, with the extent of the about term, but more of in the context of just how much lousy stuff he did that is less forgivable. And it's not just that he was apologetic for Sheldrake or put his welfare or his reputation above hers, but they did it so continuously and went to such a vulnerable time and throughout um, periods of the film and affirmed this the last time he saw her again after that time to reflect at the New Year's party. But um, for me, I can kind of buy into it because I think a mirror, you know, again, the mirror of herself, she sees it in him. When she's at the apartment, she sees them as both people who are getting took by Sheldrake. She's at the point where she's, you know, she's over the thing with Sheldrake and she's directionless um, but she's at the point where she's sort of starting to stand up against him and to see this other person who she sees 
a connection with standing up to him as well, I think gives her um, the courage and convinces her, you know, to take a leap herself. It's, it's, it's such a beautiful film. It's a beautiful film. Go see it. If you haven't seen it, if you haven't seen, if you've seen it, go see it again. It's a masterpiece. Okay. So spoilers now for witness for the prosecution. Um, I, I had difficulty with the way uh, the ending of this plays out just because I didn't buy the verdict. Um, the case as laid out is so convincing for guilt. And the only bit of counter evidence there is, is that uh, Dietrich's character has been proven via the letters to be a liar, Right. But that doesn't counteract the lack of evidence for there to be a burglar. Um, there's, there's, there's no evidence at all. There's evidence that Dietrich lied when, with the, the most blatant evidence to convict that he came home and said, I'm, I'm, I've killed someone and I, agree, I lied to protect him, right? But even considering that, it's still over, you know, like she, it's not like she came forward and, and said, yes, I murdered him. I was the real killer, which would be something that would sell me on the verdict. Um, it, it's still, like I said, seems overwhelmingly like a situation where he would be convicted. I, if I were in the jury, definitely would vote to convict. The only thing that um, leads me to grant the film a little bit of leeway here is the post-war British context where she's a German. I could believe that they uh, hate the dirty kraut so much that a jury could be swayed um, <laughs> in order to spite her. And, uh, you know, that, that's the only thing. But even, even so, it's still a stretch for me. I agree entirely. I found it frustrating from a logical perspective. I, even less so... It holds up today. I think it is all done to manufacture a button and very distinct ending, which also doesn't hold up. I don't believe that event, that further crime would happen in the context of the courtroom. And it's again, very to my point about uh, how the legal profession operates. The idea that he's and now I hate the final. I hate the final line of this movie. And now we prepare a defense for this person. No, yeah. that would never happen. That's stupid. Anyone yeah. can tell you that's stupid. It should never have been in there. The finale of this film is very stagey. Uh, too stagey. Wilder usually didn't fall victim to the limitations of stage to film adaptations like he did here. It's very much now let's quickly resolve the drama by um, within the one location characters all enter and I can buy suspension of, I can buy into the suspension of disbelief that's required for this kind of thing sometimes. Um, but the rest of the film has been so gradually paced, you know, like I, we're depicting something that could potentially happen over a much larger time period, but it's such a break from the rest of the film to, to show it all happening at once. It would have been more in keeping with the style to go a few scenes longer um, and show us the abridged version of these events playing out. This all plays it right here, yeah. I, yeah I, it's, it, it's, too, it's too absurd. It's too fast. And, so yeah. there are similar plots that play out over 
whole episodes and multiple locations and sees season arcs in practice. It's again, heightened realism, but they dedicate more time to making it feel that bit more believable while didn't obviously have that in the close context of a two hour film and it detracts from it greatly. Mm. So um, that was what is for the prosecution spoils discussion. Um, <laughs> Billy Wilder is great. He made some great films. And you should let's go, go to bed. <laughs> let's go to bed. We're going to bed. You, if you're listening, you should probably go to bed too. Or wake up on the radio, radio, man. I'm, wow. um, you think, we might. I, I, but I, is I, the longest episode? Do we have a sense of how long this is? Five hours. Is, is it really? Uh, not quite. It's no, closer to. 9.30 to 2. And yeah, it's then it's, an it's hour over before. four hours. We might fill the whole night shift on 2SER. Yes. If you're listening <laughs> at like 3.58 a.m. I really hope you are and then yeah because we've timed it just right and and trust us we are as tired as you because you might be like oh my god this is I'm we're struggling to get through the whole episode we are as tired because this is 2 a.m. and right now I'm struggling to form a coherent sentence I like to think that there's some truck driver delivering essential supplies right now on some long 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 road you know just listening to a bunch of legends yeah, we yeah. do think you're a legend if you're out there. And uh, thanks for listening to home, a bunch of nerds talking about the apartment and others. If you're going back home to your apartment, you know, have, get a good night's sleep. Yeah. Uh, or they, a good day's sleep, as it might be. Don't be like Jack Lemon bringing multiple people over. That's not what you're supposed to do. Right exactly. Now. Think about all the germs in that apartment. You're just getting spread. Ugh. It's not a COVID friendly apartment. No, it's not. It definitely no, isn't with some of the things going on in there. No. <laughs> He's not helping with flattening the curve, but um, appreciate everyone who is, so we can all get back to yeah. Flat, um, flattening your forehands yeah. and and the curve. And yeah, cool. Uh, it's been I'll flatten you. <laughs> no, I, I won't. I don't know. I'm, it's just that time of night where I'll say anything for a cheap laugh. And uh, <laughs> Lamo. Yeah, yeah. Kazoom. We, 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 brought, we brought the fight to Film Fight Club finally. Yeah, the fighting sounds. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's kind of so we can see each other again yeah. and actually have fights and, in the studio. Because yeah. yeah. I think we're going to resolve some of these things. Yeah. yeah. Tell us what do you want us to fight about? Yeah, yeah. If next truck driver <laughs> or insomniac, yeah. whoever it is. Does that be a director? It can be an actor. It can be a topic. It can be a film. It can be a subject. It can be a decade. It can be anything. Yeah. yeah. Just don't, just don't pick favorite them actor yourself. called uh, Fred. Can Murray? I just say, uh, this is probably maybe my favorite episode we've done of this show, despite it being amazingly self-indulgently long. <laughs> Definitely my favorite in a, in quite a while. Because what do you guys all, think? All the movies were good. Like, yeah. you know, it, this, um, I have a great fondness for the Nicolas Cage episode. Yeah, I, I, that was that was really, really fun too. Cage um, upon, yeah. Some of the SF coverage of of love. That's true. The SF, PDF, oh, this has been a highlight. The, the this PDF is the highlight of our. I enjoyed our, the Star Wars early morning one, which probably at about at about a similar time. I was just too tired and angry at that no, point, so no, I sort of no, didn't really I, enjoy it. I was it. much angrier than you, Chris. I, was, I, you was, were, I hated that movie. I hated the whole thing. You, you were you were so right about the movie, by the way. You're so right. <laughs> um, uh, you, yeah. It's weird how when I see these nerd fests at their midnight screenings or on the first day, like with Endgame and Star Wars, I just sort of go with it. Like, yeah, okay, fun. Whereas usually I would just be furious at the nonsense that these films try and, and pull. 
I was with all, I was with a number of friends. Uh, Chris was at the Chris was at the screening, and a lot of my friends were like, "Yeah, I was really enjoying it." And I was just thinking, "Wait a minute, am I the only one who feels this way?" Well, everyone said everyone was saying that for a while because um, it has that kind of effect on you. It signals to you early on you're not supposed to think about this. You're supposed to be distracted by the relentless pacing and the flashing lights. And if you treat it on that level, it is perfectly okay. It pays off sort of the storyline of the trilogy and has some Star Wars iconography to canned emotional moments. It's competently put together in that way. It's just if you start to think about it at all that the entire thing caves in. I was struck by, I went to see it for the third time with uh, two friends and two former roommates whose books the um, you guys were able to see, some of which are sitting behind me on my bookshelf and some of which my mic is perched on. I was still quite close friends. And But even though I dislike this film, he wanted to see it. They're both massive Star Wars fans. They're much bigger fans than I am and they know much more of the expanded universe and they're more invested in this. So I went with them and they didn't know what the story was. They went in completely unbeknownst and they came out and one of the comments was, look, if you treat these, he's referring to seven through nine, as three separate films from three separate sagas and nothing to do with each other, they're all individually enjoyable. I don't agree, but it makes episode nine and even episode seven a lot more palatable, if you take that view. Um, right now, we're just torturing Virat by keeping him awake. Yeah, we but, need to go- uh, this, yeah. this ties back to the Star Wars screening where Virat had played the wisest move of all, falling asleep during... The Rise of Skywalker. Ah, fortuitous were you. <laughs> but to be honest, we had the worst seats. Like we right did, it was so shite. And, yeah. and also, we like sitting... it was an assault on the eyes because everything was so flashy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Only because people were like, "Oh, I don't know if I want to come." Like, tell us, we have to book these goddamn tickets. It was midnight, and if you're not super into Star Wars, like Verat, and you're in those seats, which make it a mental struggle. Because the, I did wear my travels T-shirt. So. Yeah, you did. Um, the it's a mental struggle because when you're that close to the screen, this is why I'll never understand all you people out there who like the front row of the cinema. Oh my god, all those um, critics who just keep. Just for, yeah, your brain has to do extra work to kind of correct for the angle. Yeah, you know, everyone's faces are really distorted, and, even, even and things make, are blurry and hard to see, especially even with the, the make, like you know the positioning and stuff. Out. I can't just keep looking up like that. It's so weird. It yeah, and it hurts your neck. It's just, yeah. it's just awful. But yeah. um, please, Jack, please practice proper posture while you're at home, self-isolating. You have the opportunity now. Don't no, slouch. The, he, Literally, he don't say slouch. that as I'm bending forward and yeah. while feeling back pain and ignoring it. Oh God. Yeah, we've been sitting for the last four hours or something, hey, and everything. I've actually been on a call since. Oh God, it's been. I'm calculating. That's my bed. Thanks for listening, guys. Yeah, th- thanks. You've for... made it this far. We salute you. Yeah. I wonder how many people are just going to, who might ordinarily give the podcast a shot are just going to look at the, the ridiculous <laughs> length of this and go, not today. <laughs> you know what? Let's split it in two parts. If, 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 if you... Like, this is the Billy Wilder trilogy. If you fast forward to this point, we salute you and you, you joined us <laughs> in the other space now. We're a whole new danger. We're in a whole new zone, whole new danger zone. We are. Um, we've broken beyond the event horizon. Yeah, etc. Clearly, clearly, love, get three guys together. Love movies, guys. Love movies. Enjoy movies. 
I mean, clearly, if you get three guys together, they can talk long enough and into the night. So this is proof. It's like talking about movies. <laughs> we'll never, we'll never run out of things to say. No, make more movies. We'll watch them. We'll talk about them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who wants to talk about Extraction? No, I haven't seen it yet. I haven't uh, seen it. I was, no, I was okay. recommended it today. By I didn't, and, and that or that never, never, never have I met ever the Mindy Kaling series, which is also horrible. Sure, yeah. no. Also horrible. Yeah. Uh, I mean, extraction? To be honest, like I, I, I'm okay with, you know, Indian representation, but if that's what we get out of it, I'm sorry. I don't want it. We is could, this just the Indian version of like to all the boys I've loved before or something like that? I, yeah, but worse. Well, what's the other one? I will not hear a word against baby? all the boys love before or the sequels, sirs. They have more than one sequel? Oh, yeah, they're, they're, I think there's one, but they'll make another one. Of course they will. Um, it's been, it's, it's been good. It's been good. That, thank you for listening and go watch Billy Wilder movies. Go watch good yeah. movies. Yeah. And yeah. I, and yeah, talking about that, I bought an apartment. Hey, <laughs> yeah. Oh, you did. It did. Don't um, lend it out to your bosses, no matter yeah, what they promise in return. <laughs> but look, if you if but Virat, if you do, nobody's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> good night. Good morning. Good evening. Whenever <laughs> you, you could have started listening at this night, and the birds are chirping outside now. <laughs> I, I see the light coming through. <laughs> no. All right. Good night, guys. Good Peace night, out. guys. Peace out.